So today we have the pleasure of hearing from a member of our teaching team, Peter Evis. I got to preview his notes yesterday and we are in for a real treat. So please join me in welcoming Peter Evis. My name is Peter. I'm, uh, uh, I've been a member of the river for um, 10 years, more than 10 years now. And uh, I've never actually been on staff. Um, I think they looked at my record and, you know, <laughs> discouraged any, attempt, any, any urge on my part to join the staff. But they do allow me to give the talk every now and again, which is why I'm up here today. And I, I'm part of the, the, the teaching team. Um, and, I, and I love doing this. I like being up here. Um, and so the, the title of my sermon today is, um, you know, how do I think about um, politics in, in toxic times? And I just wanted to say something at the outset. The Evis household, um, uh, we're living in toxic times right now, not, not because we're having sort of very acrimonious debates among us, although that does happen. Um, it's that we have a dog. Um, it's a, a chocolate lab and two cats, and they're getting really old. Uh, so old, in fact, that they're starting to have like bathroom issues, and you know, and in, in the in the last few weeks, there's been a steady stream, and I mean stream, of of um, messes to clear up, and so I'm really dreading going home and seeing what's like on the rug when I get home. So, as they say in church circles, pray for us. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, how do I think about politics in toxic times? And this, this, this sermon is part of our series of sermons. Um, um, we're giving talks on issues that generate controversy. And we had Charles give a talk on salvation recently, and also um, Melinda gave a talk on the gospel and poverty, um, and they were both great. And our motivation with this series is that we wanted to make sure that we weren't avoiding certain subjects just because we are in church, okay? There's a big temptation to leave certain subjects alone, not talk about them, don't touch that, um, just to keep the peace, so to speak. And, 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 and we, we know here that taking on a decisive issue can have far-reaching consequences. Uh, we officially became kind of like LGBT affirming uh, uh, some years ago, and that had consequences, and they were often difficult in many ways. So we know the temptation to stay away from certain things, but we've also done it. We've embraced a difficult issue and, and lived through it. And... Um, and I think we all have, uh, you know, an attachment to certain issues. We, 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 we feel affinity to certain causes, and we feel very strongly about those, I'm sure. Um, but I'm sure you also know that if you disagree with people about those issues, which obviously you do because not everyone believes the same thing, um, these intellectual difficulties can quickly flare into some sort of deeply felt antipathy. And so what do we do with that? You know, my, my, my attempt today, my, effort, my, my hope today is that we'd look at how we can disagree uh, with others, you know, fight for our causes uh, without going too far and causing unnecessary fracturing in our relationships and in society, okay? And I, I think that people are trying to find a way to do this. Like one of my favorite people on TV right now is this guy from CNN called Van Jones. And he has understood this challenge, I think. Um, I like the way he's, you know, stepped into this charge moment in our nation. And this is from his website. Now he's tooting his own horn here. But I think it's, it's accurate when he says, 
Van Jones burst into the American consciousness during the 2016 presidential campaign with an unscripted truth-telling style and an already established bridge history of bridge building across party lines. A longtime progressive activist with deep roots in the conservative South, Jones has made it his mission to challenge voters and viewers to stand in one another's shoes and disagree constructively. Okay? I like that last line, stand in one another's shoes and disagree constructively. And this is an election year. And if we're responsible citizens, we're going to want to engage in the politics of our country. And this is my hope for us, that we'd feel released to engage heartily with all the political issues we care about, take sides on things, fight for them hard, hard as we can, but also do it in a way that doesn't make ourselves and other people feel miserable, okay? I want to look at how we can be engaged without denigrating others or doing or saying things that we later regret, okay? And that's what I want for us, okay? And with the help of two passages from the Bible, one from the New Testament and one from the Old Testament, I want to show how God can help us get there. And, and I feel like Jesus has done this for me over the decades, the many decades of my life, okay? Um, <laughs> Since I was like an early teen, like since I was like 14-year-old boy, you know, reading about the news, I've loved debating stuff and taking sides. And looking back at those years, I, I would ar arrange my engagement in politics in three distinct phases, okay? Stage one uh, was from my mid-teens to my mid-twenties when it was all about the fight, okay? I was radical. I set up a, a left-wing magazine when I was 15 or 16, um, we, were, we were allowed to put out like two issues before the local Labour Party shut us down. Um, and, and, um, and at that time, my political enemies were just bad. They were evil, okay? And the more you pointed that out, the stronger your arguments were, right? That was my perspective in that phase. Stage two occurred from my mid-20s until my early 40s. You know, I found faith in my mid-20s, and I learned pretty quickly that you're supposed to love your enemies. You know, that's part of Christianity. So I behaved better on the surface, but I was still deep down preoccupied with proving the other side wrong, right? You know, that, that urge, we you know, spilled over from politics into faith. And so I had in my head all these religious and political battles that needed to be won. I needed to conquer, you know? And I, and I think back to those years, and I remember how I would read stuff. I would always be looking for things that would prove the other side wrong. And, and if you approach anything like that, proving other people wrong, you're going to miss out on a lot of good stuff. And I was pretty miserable internally during that time. Um, but thankfully, um, I, I entered a place that I've been for the last decade or so, and the river's approach to faith really helped me get there. And, and that's because we believe that, you know, faith in Jesus is actually meant to make your life feel good, right? You know, you're supposed to feel good about yourself, other people, God, and you believe that because God is good. You know, everything that God does is good. Everything about him is good. So faith should feel good. And when we let God's goodness flow into our lives, we're going to experience more and more of the abundant life that Jesus promised. That's, that's, the, that's the mission of this church, so to speak, okay? 
And so what that means is as that goodness flows into those other parts of your life, all those inner struggles, some we're aware of, some we're not, start to lose their negative power over us. And this, this process positively transforms um, parts of our lives. And for me, it meant that I could still be really passionate about issues, but with far less antipathy towards others and with much more peace in my own soul, right? It felt better for me. And, and, and I want to talk about how God does that today, how we can both be joyful and passionate as we engage in the controversies of our time. So I want to look first as a passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and this is it. I'm going to re- just read it out. Okay. As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners um, came in um, and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so what's going on here, okay? So we have the tax collectors. Um, These were people who collected taxes for the Roman occupiers of the land, okay? Everyone hated them, okay? Um, not just because they were coming for taxes for the occupiers, but also because these tax collectors would, like, skim money for themselves, okay? They were the opportunistic middlemen that were lining their own pockets whenever they could, and I'm pretty sure that all the Democratic candidates would go after them in their debates. They'd be like, yeah, we're going to take down the tax collectors, right? Um, and uh, Even though Democrats like taxes, sorry. Um, and yet, and yet, and... Um, we should do a, a talk just on taxes, right? That would be contro- contro- controversial, wouldn't it? No? John? No? no? Okay. Flat tax. No. no. Okay. Um, and yet, Jesus and his disciples are eating with the tax collectors. They're not only eating, they're reclining. Like, who lies down with tax collectors? Do you know what I mean? Like, put your head nice on their shoulder. Like, you know. Um, Many of them were reclining, the passage says. And this is a startling picture. This is like Bernie having friendly beers with some guy who runs a local bucket shop, or Lloyd Blankfein, or something like that. It's really that bizarre that he would be nestling his head into the, you know, into the, into, onto the shoulder of, like, you know, of the tax collectors, okay? So we have the tax collectors. And then we have the Pharisees, okay? And they were a large religious sect of the time, pretty dominant one, and they very much valued adherence to the religious law. And according to the Gospels, some of them disagreed with much of what Jesus did, and Jesus would often clash with them in return. And those, those exchanges are really fun to read, okay? It's when you see Jesus getting kind of angry. Um, and, but I wonder sometimes, you know, if the Gospels give a fully rounded account of the Pharisees. I mean, there were definitely tensions at the time between the, the Jews who began to follow Jesus and those like the Pharisees who, who didn't do that and stuck with their existing traditions. But I wonder sometimes when I read the Gospels if the, if the Christians who kind of like made up, that, made up the Gospels, I mean wrote the Gospels and make them up, um, made, made the Pharisees seem like, you know, a little bit worse than they actually were because of the fact that they were living under such tension. And there is recent scholarship showing that the Pharisees 
had more mercy and heart um, um, when, when you look more closely. You know, even the book of Acts, um, which is part of the Christian Bible, reveals a Pharisee who stood up for the followers, uh, the early followers of Jesus. So it's not black and white, okay? So, and, and, and interestingly, Pete Buttigieg recently apologized for calling Mike Pence a Pharisee, and he promised not to do it because, you know, it can sort of spill out and, and, and create potential for sort of anti-Semitic, you know, feelings. So I, I respect that Pete did that, okay? Um, so, you know, that's how I think about the Pharisees today. And I think that perhaps it's more helpful for us, you know, here in, at the river today on, you know, in February you know, 2020, to, to think of the Pharisees as that part of us that likes to judge other people. That part of us that easily slips into believing the worst of others. And if we do that, we are presented today in this passage with two very different worldviews, okay? One is the judging worldview. You know, the overwhelming focus of the judges, the Pharisees in this passage, is the badness of the tax collectors. They're so bad that anyone representing God and faith should absolutely not be relaxing with these people. You know, the perceived evil of the tax collectors consumes the judges in this passage. They have taken up the position of prosecutor. Their overriding desire is to convict, 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 show them a wrong, and just keep them outside, okay? The other worldview is represented by Jesus. And absent is this desire to show the other side is obviously wrong, okay? Instead, Jesus sees need in other people, not evil, Okay, Jesus sees a need that he can heal. And as a result, and you can see it in this passage, Jesus comes as a friend. He's reclining with them. He's eating with them. But he also comes as a doctor, as a physician, offering mercy as a way to help people get better. He's going to give them his mercy, God's mercy. And, and, and you can see what, what Jesus has done here. It's pretty amazing. He's made everything big enough. He's made the scene big enough for everyone. Anyone can come to him and interact with him, no matter where you're at. The net is cast infinitely wide, and so no one is denied entry at the door. Anyone can come in. Anyone can hang out with him. And, and, just, and I mean that, anyone. And so it's big. But Jesus has also made it, on a micro level, directly personal. It's one-on-one. -on -one. There are bonds being formed in this scene. You know, the bad stuff that the tax collectors do is somewhere probably in the mix, but Jesus never makes it front and center here. And it, the, the vibe of this scene is sort of something like this. Yeah, we're, we're going to get to that stuff, you know, at the right time, but for now, let's get to know each other. That's how I feel this scene. And so if you hold that passage in your head, we're going to go to our second scripture today. And this one is from the book of Isaiah, okay? And Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, which means he told the truth to the people of Israel, um, even if they didn't want to hear it, okay? And there are so many searing, beautiful passages in Isaiah that reveal God's everlasting commitment uh, to us. And it's one of the reasons that we called our son Isaiah, okay? Um, which, of course, we immediately shortened to Zay Zay. Um, call him that if you want. He's 15, you know. Maybe Baby Zay. That was another one we used. Um, yeah, just walk up and say, how are you doing, Zay Zay? Okay. Um, 
Anyway, so this passage is from Isaiah, Isaiah 41, 17, 18. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. That's powerful, right? Does that not show God's commitment, right? And I actually came across this one in a great book that was recommended to me by my buddy Mike, who's here today. Um, And it's called uh, Amity and Prosperity, and it's about a family that fought a fracking company in southwestern Pennsylvania, and it won the nonfiction prize for 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 um, the um, for the Pulitzer nonfiction prize, a uh, nonfiction book last year. And the matriarch of the family, who's an amazing woman, um, you know contended, among other things, that the, the fracking companies were polluting the water and on her land, and that's why this scripture's there, and it just, like, really jumped out at me, um, and it's an amazing book that, that, that shows the courage of people. Um, and, and this passage, and many others in the Bible, tells us that God, and I think this is really important for us to understand, that, that the poor are always under threat, okay? The downtrodden continually, and I stress that, continually face fundamental challenges that the wealthy and the well-off and the comfortable do not face, okay? And God is always on their side through this. He is always working to bring justice and relief to the poor. And this passage is also a reminder to us that God wants to bring our social consciences to life. We all have them somewhere, and he wants to breathe life into them. He wants us to care for the disadvantaged like he cares. You know, and his love for the downtrodden is particularly powerful, and he wants us to feel it too as we, you know, do our faith lives together. You know, as we, as we talk to Jesus about what's going on in the world, we're going to feel that same strong compassion that we, we sense in this passage, right? And, and that's great, but how does it answer our question for today? How do I think about politics uh, in toxic times? Well, I think it gives us focus, okay? If we feel a connection with the vulnerable, we're going to be drawn to ways to help. You know, once we start to feel, you know, once we start to interact with God and everything, we're going to really deeply feel the seriousness of poverty. We're going to feel the seriousness of abuse. We're going to feel the seriousness of discrimination. And those will sober us up. They'll wake us up. And our eyes should be fixed on tackling those things. And as we sort of, you know, are drawn into that focus, uh, I think we're going to not be as drawn into pointless, acrimonious fights, okay? You know, of course, you know, as we, you know, dive into the, into the big debates of the day, the chances for, you know, things getting toxic increases. We all feel that. But if we remember why we're doing this, which is to help people who have, you know, who really need our help, we're, we're going to be less tempted to denigrate others, right? We're going to be more focused on doing the thing, the good thing that we want to do. Right? That's how I feel that passage. So I wanted to start, sort of start to bring things together to finish out today. You know, I've been a, f- a person of faith for like 30 years, somebody who follows Jesus for 30 years. And, and that journey, you know, from this vantage point has given me uh, the ability to weigh whether faith actually provides something unique or whether or not you could get it some other place just without God. And all our lives are different, so I might get something from faith that my like atheist buddy might get anyway, just because he's, you know, stronger, better character than me. I don't know. So it's very hard to compare lives. But from this vantage point, 
I actually believe that faith in Jesus does offer something special, and we can see that in our, in our passages today. And if we put it all together, um, it, it kind of works like this. We, we know from these passages that we have a God who cares about our lives, who cares about those who are left behind, who are oppressed, who are living on the edge, and he's working toward bringing them relief and justice, and that's what we see in our passage from Isaiah. But God is, is also calling individuals, okay? Jesus in our passage understands that everyone is a unique being with his or her own backstories and motivations and beliefs, and you cannot change that. You can't steamroll that away, okay? And so that means that the net has to be wide enough for everyone to come in and be part of things. Each one of us matters, and we should feel, each one of us should feel, I, I totally believe this, each one of you has something valuable to contribute to the political debate of our times, okay? And that is the message of Matthew. You matter. What you think matters. And God has a way for each one of us to get the most out of politics, even in times that might seem more toxic than, say, a decade ago. And so my big recommendation, as it usually is when I preach, is that we talk about all of this in prayer with God. You know, just we can just hash this out in the conversations that we have with him. We can be honest with him. We can, we can like, repent. We can reveal our fears. We can, you know, tell, us, tell him what we really think about other people and, um, and tell him what makes us angry and, and tell, tell him what you, what you like. And, and, and I'm absolutely certain that he'll respond in ways that, that will feel like, you know, the abundant life that Jesus promised. And all of that will extend into your political engagement. Okay, so that's, what, that's the big thing I think will happen is if we press into this. And as is our practice in the river, I wanted to finish uh, with three practical suggestions. Um, so number one, I would say consider social media Sabbaths, okay? Um, <laughs> Twitter is something... I personally have to be particularly careful with. Uh, back in 2016, I deleted my Twitter account that had like thousands of followers. You know, oh, what a sacrifice. No, but um, <laughs> that, that, that account is gone forever. Um, and, and at the time, I remember thinking I couldn't take the, the smart Alex, the bitterness, the, the snideness, the just complete lack of good faith engagement. But um, I needed Twitter for my job, so I got a new account, um, totally different account. And, and, and so I'm sort of learning to live with it. And I like some aspects of Twitter. I like reading disagreements. I like the, some of the fights that go on there. Um, um, and I try to engage carefully. Um, but I felt like I was about to have a relapse uh, into toxic Twitter last year um, <laughs> because of Brexit. You know, I mean, like, that was seriously toxic on Twitter. And so what I would do in order to sort of maintain some mental health, I would delete Twitter from my phone on a Friday night at sundown and reopen it, like, on Monday morning. And that really helped. I had a Twitter Sabbath, and it really helped. Um, so maybe structured breaks from social media may help you, too. I don't know how engaged you are. Um, number two, don't be afraid to disagree with your tribe, okay? Um, the problem with political movements is that they are movements, right? They're mass movements, and they require a certain level of conformity, and you kind of have to buy into most things that these movements uh, uh, want to do because why would you join them otherwise? So I'm not saying that, like, you know, you, know, 
you should just that's part of the part of the uh, part of the deal. Um, but it can also be a little bit silencing, okay? Um, if you feel like you can never say something, you know, that might sort of contradict uh, slightly the message of the group you're part of. But but the but the Matthew passage tells us that you know our engagement in politics and 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 anything in life can only work if we feel like we can be ourselves in any setting, okay? So what that means, if something doesn't quite sit right with you, we should always feel comfortable raising our hand. And saying, like, actually, you know what, I kind of disagree. I think maybe we should do something this way, or maybe that that isn't quite the issue. We should always feel like we have the space to do that. Even if that space doesn't exist, we should just go and generate the space for ourselves and then offer something constructive, obviously. We're not just there to, like, criticize, um, offer another way of doing things. And I think this would all be valuable for any group that you're part of. So that's the other thing I would say. Don't be afraid to disagree with your tribe. And number three, know when to stop arguing, okay? It's absolutely the case that we'll never see eye to eye with certain people. You know, nothing will change that. (laughs) So just move your energy elsewhere. It's okay to not engage. And, you know, my ambition is to get a Taylor Swift lyric into every sermon I preach. Um, (laughs) Because she, she is just like, knows everything about life. Every aspect of life she's already addressed in her enormous catalog, an amazing catalog of songs. And um, seriously, and on, the, and on the subject of knowing when to move on, um, she sings this in her recent masterpiece, You Need to Calm Down. And what do you mean? This is good stuff. Um, and I ain't trying to mess with your self-expression, but I've learned a lesson that stressing and obsessing about somebody else is no fun. Yes? Yeah, there you go, Taylor. All right? There's a time for arguing. There's a time to move on. All right, I'm done.